Welcome to New Life Church's weekly message. New Life Church's mission is to lead people into a transforming relationship with Jesus through the gospel. This week, speaker Pastor Steve Benninger delivers an Easter sermon from John chapter 11 in the series Portraits. Jesus, who are you? You can find the sermon outline and video for this message at enewlife.com or the New Life Church Kahana mobile app. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after, he said, then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that, me, that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, 
If you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but when I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Amen. Thanks, Lassiter. And uh, hey, happy Easter to you. He is risen. Amen. Amen. It is great to see you today. I am so glad you're here on Resurrection Day. And uh, I know we have some guests with us today. And I want to give you a special welcome. Thank you for coming. Even if uh, you got drugged here by your crazy religious aunt, I'm glad you're here. <laughs> and uh, this is your very first time with us here at New Life Today. I want you to know a few things about us here at our church, okay? First of all, there are no perfect people here, like zero. Uh, you are among a, bu a bunch of people who are flawed and imperfect, so you can feel right at home, okay? <laughs> you can feel right at home with us here. You don't have to have it all together to come to this church. We also want you to understand that uh, we're a church that believes in the Bible. We love the Bible. And we elevate the teachings of the Bible above human opinion because we just feel that God is smarter than we are. And so um, we preach and teach from the Bible every week. And then I want you to know that we love Jesus Christ. And we love his good news. And we believe that Jesus is the best news that anybody could ever hear. Amen? Amen. amen. And also, if you're here, you may hear a few people say amen every now and then. That means um, I agree, or yes, or so be it. And so you can say amen if you want to. And it's been known to help preachers preach a little better if somebody says amen every now and then. And Certainly, I could stand to preach a little better, so help me out, all right? And so, hey. <laughs> they did that last night, too, and it came from the same area, so. <laughs> Toxic over here, I guess. I don't know. Well, hey, it's Easter, and on this day, we celebrate the great news of an event, a historical event that occurred over 1,900 years ago over in Israel. When Jesus of Nazareth, a young man, a 30-something young man, demonstrated his power over death by literally, bodily, physically, miraculously rising from the grave three days after he was crucified and buried in a tomb. And we rejoice in that today, don't we? That he is alive. 
We also celebrate the ramifications of it, the theological ramifications of that event, which are massive, because think about it. If, if that man could actually predict his own death and his own resurrection in advance and then pull it off, well, that changes everything. It really does. Because it follows, logically then, that, that everything that else that he said must be true as well. And Jesus said a lot. As my friend Jay Farabaugh likes to say, if you're gonna listen to somebody, listen to that guy who rose from the dead. He's got something to say, and he is to be believed. And so this is why Christians all around the globe make such a big deal out of Easter, because it is a big deal. It's the biggest deal of human history. God the Son rose from the grave. So take the study guide out of your worship folder. We provide one of these for you every weekend so that you can kind of follow along. And if some of you like filling in blanks, that sort of thing, we try to help, uh, help you track with us here. And so here in our church, we've been in a very intriguing study together over the past uh, several months, really. We've been exploring a biography of Jesus. And it's a biography that's in the Bible. And it was written by a very close friend of Jesus whose name was John. And we call his biography what? John, or the Gospel of John. And John had a purpose in writing. He tells us in John chapter 30 and verse, chapter 20, verse 31, that he wrote this account of Jesus' life with a specific aim in mind to help his readers believe. Believe in Jesus with their whole heart. And so he tells us that he wrote his book to stir up faith. And this account of the raising of Lazarus that we just heard read a few moments ago was included by John in his account for that very purpose, to stir up faith, to stir up belief. Now, when I read through this passage, and I did a number of times just in preparation for today, I see six huge themes being played out in this amazing story. And this comes right out of the text. I wonder if you picked up on them. Love, glory, death, sorrow, resurrection, and faith. And I want to talk about these for a moment. Think about love for a minute. This is a story about love. And the writer, John, takes great pains to make sure we understand the loving relationship that Jesus had with these siblings, with Mary and her sister Martha and their brother Lazarus. Verse five tells us plainly, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And it's obvious in the story that, that they love him as well. There's a lot of affection here. John wants us to see that what happened in this scene was born out of love. And we need to explore that further to understand it. And then a second prominent theme is glory, the glory of God. Did you notice that? In verse four, Jesus tells the sisters, Lazarus' illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And later, at the gravesite, Jesus tells Martha, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see, what? The glory of God. And so apparently, through this situation, God wanted to put his glory on display for everyone to see. And evidently, that would only happen if Lazarus was allowed to die. And so we're going to need to talk about that also to try to understand that. And that brings us 
to the next big theme in this story, and that is death. So Lazarus got sick, and it was fatal. Within days he died, and his lifeless body was placed in a cold, dark tomb. As we all know, but we don't like to think about, death is an inevitable reality of human existence. Think about it. Everybody in this room has an appointment with death. And it's not that kind of appointment that you can call up and cancel out of it or reschedule it. (laughs) It's a reality of our existence. And it's also true that when we experience the death of a loved one, somebody we love, it gives rise to some of the most intense emotions, right? Some of the most intense human emotions that exist. And that's the next theme that we see here, the theme of sorrow and grief and loss. You read through this story, you see there's a lot of tears here. A lot of tears. A man got sick and he died and that man was a brother and he was a son and he was a friend. And so we see emotions come pouring out of the people who love this man, including Jesus. In fact, the shortest verse in the entire Bible, John eleven thirty five, 35, is found in this chapter which says, Jesus wept. That was at his friend's funeral. Even though Jesus knew that in just a matter of moments he was going to raise his friend from the grave, the grief that accompanies loss still ran deep in him. But then we see the whole mood changing, don't we, when the next theme is introduced. Resurrection. Resurrection. In full view of everybody, Jesus calls Lazarus out of the tomb. And what we're going to see is that Lazarus being raised was a preview of Jesus being raised and also a preview of you being raised one day from the grave. Now, I didn't have Lassiter read it, but but the way this chapter ends is kind of funny to me. It ends with the ruling council of the Jews called the Sanhedrin, like a, a high council of religious leaders. They're all upset. Because after Jesus performed this miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead, so many people put their faith in Jesus and started to follow him, and that made them upset because it it caused them to be worried about attracting some unwanted attention from Rome. And so, what it says, they started to scheme to put Jesus to death. And I'm thinking, he just raised someone from the dead. I mean, if you're gonna get rid of this guy, you're gonna have to find something stronger than death because he's got power over death and he just proved it. Anyway, I just thought that was comical, you know, they're, they're illogic <laughs> in that regard. Well, John tells us that many people who were there who witnessed the raising of Lazarus believed. They put their faith in Jesus Christ. Not all of them, but many of them did, and that's the final theme we see in this story, faith or belief. It's the whole goal of Jesus raising Lazarus. Back before they even went to his hometown, before they left for Bethany, Jesus told his disciples in verse 14, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I am glad I wasn't there so that you may believe. It's about faith. After he arrived, Jesus told Martha in verse 40 that if she believed, she would see the glory of God. At the tomb, At Lazarus' tomb, Jesus prayed, it says, out loud, so that the people who heard him speak with his father 
would believe. And so this is all about believing. It's all about faith. In fact, the very reason John even reports this story in his biography of Jesus is so that those of us who one day would read it might believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be. So six big themes. But my question is, how do they fit together? How do these six big ideas all fit together? How does love relate to grief and death and the glory of God and faith and resurrection? And I think the answers might surprise us. So I want us to see on this Easter Sunday if we can draw out the realities that this story was meant to reveal. And I'm telling you, you need to brace yourself, okay? (laughs) Resurrection is where we're headed. But we're gonna wade through some pretty deep theological waters to get there. So I hope that's okay on Easter Sunday. Some of these truths are gonna sound kind of strange to us, and so that's why I'm calling them mind-bending realities. Especially this first one. So here we go, number one. Isn't it obvious in this story that Jesus purposefully allowed painful circumstances to occur that he could have easily prevented? Isn't that true? Did that jump out at you when we read the story? I think we shouldn't skip over this because that very truth is one that your skeptical friends will throw in your face to justify why why they don't believe in your God. Or maybe this morning, this is where you find yourself questioning God, questioning God because of what he has allowed to happen. And maybe in your spirit you're saying, hey look, you tell me that your God is good and loving and powerful. Well, if that's the case, why didn't he prevent the attack this week in Brussels or the one in France or the one in San Bernardino? Where was your good God then? And why doesn't he divert deadly hurricanes and tornadoes away from property and away from people? God is so good, like you say, why doesn't he prevent all natural disaster? Why doesn't he stop all human suffering? Be honest, how many of you have ever had those kinds of questions? The rest of you, I think, are lying. (laughs) We all have. Look, some of the people in this story, this situation here in John 11, were asking that same question, weren't they? If you had been here, Jesus, my brother wouldn't have died. Where were you? Where were you in our moment of need? Why didn't you show up? At the gravesite, you could hear the mourners whispering. Didn't this guy heal a blind man? Couldn't he have done something to prevent his friend's death? And it's true. Jesus could have kept it from happening. He could have, but he chose not to. He purposely did not show up in time to save his friend. Where were you, Jesus? Some of you have asked that question recently. Jesus, why didn't you show up and heal my dad's cancer? Where were you? Why did you allow us to lose our child? Why didn't you stop my company from from letting me go, from releasing me? I just don't understand. You're God, you say you love people. I'm struggling, God. I'm struggling to trust you because you could have prevented these things from happening and you didn't. But the truth is inescapable, is it not? Jesus does allow painful things to happen to people. I think 
Every single one of us could testify that Jesus does not always swoop in and save the day and prevent bad things from happening. And so I ask, is there anything in this story here, the story of Lazarus, that gives us something to to cling to, something solid to stand on? Does it give us any ballast for our boat? Keep us from tipping over? Is there anything that can help us resolve this apparent tension between God's power and ability and the fact that he allows painful things to happen? And I think there is, but... You have to have eyes to see it. You have to have a heart to receive it because it's there but it's not natural. There is a purpose for God allowing pain and suffering and even death like in this story but until the Holy Spirit opens your eyes to see it, it just might seem foreign to you or even offensive. I believe there's a clue in verse three. So the sisters sent to him, Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And with those words, we are lifted up high into the stratosphere high above, and given a vantage point from which to see the one overarching purpose for the whole universe and everything in it, including suffering and death. I believe God wants to cure us of our suspicion of his motives whenever he doesn't show up on time to prevent our pain and our suffering. But for this to happen, we've, we've got to grasp a second reality, number two, purpose of pain The purpose of pain, indeed the purpose of the entire universe is to put on display the glory of God. This illness is for the glory of God, he said. Let those words sink in now. This cancer is for the glory of God. The reason I didn't prevent that tragedy, Jesus was saying, is for my own great glory. I did not stop your boss from letting you go on Friday because I have a plan for making my name great. The purpose for allowing that deadly drunk driving accident was to put my glory on display in ways you wouldn't have seen if it hadn't happened. I live that one. Friends, this understanding of God's heart is fundamental to not only grasping the Bible, but to understand your own life as well. God's primary aim in the universe is to display his glory. Everything that God allows to happen or causes to happen by direct agency has that as its ultimate purpose, its ultimate purpose, the glory of God. Is this not the teaching of the Bible? All things were created by him and what? For him, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever, amen, says Romans eleven thirty six. 36. In Isaiah it says, I created you for my glory. I mean, do a word study on this word glory sometime in the Bible, and if you can receive it, you will see that God's heart is to magnify his own glory in everything, including the pain in your past, 
the limitations that plague you in your presence, the shattering of future dreams, even the heartbreaking death of a loved one like happened here. Now, if you chafe under that, um, welcome to the club. A lot of people chafe under that. I used to chafe under the notion that God is all about his own glory. Like a lot of people, I used to think that God ought to be about my glory, my success, my well-being, my comfort, my ease, my happiness. I mean, I was taught that God loves me, which is true, and I figured that meant that God was all about making much of me. Thankfully, somehow, by the grace of God, I eventually came to see that if God was all about me, he would be a sinner. He would be an idolater, and he would be deceived because I'm not the most magnificent being in the universe. He is. For God to be God, he must be about highlighting and focusing on his own glory. But maybe you're here thinking, but, but that doesn't sound like love. I mean, God does love us, right? For God so love the world, how can a loving God be all focused on magnifying his own glory? That doesn't sound loving to me. Some of you are thinking that. How can God's self-exaltation be loving towards me? And that brings us to a third reality that, that Lazarus' story reveals so clearly. Number three, brace yourself, I said, Jesus' love for his people might be something totally different than what we're accustomed to seeing as love. I gotta be honest, I was nearly 50 years old before I got this. So some of you are gonna get a big jump on me this morning. <laughs> Even today, while I get it up here, my heart is still catching up with this truth. Listen, God is deeply committed to his own glory and God loves me. But his pursuit of his glory and his love for me are not at odds with each other. They are not mutually exclusive ideas. In fact, his deep desire to magnify himself is loving towards me. Even though it leads him to sometimes allow pain into my life. I said this was a mind-bending reality, right? And if that sounds confusing to you, I want you to watch and see how this very truth gets revealed in this story. We gotta go back to verse five, because John wants us to see what true love looks like here. So scroll back with me to verse five. It says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. What's that tell us? There was deep love there, deep affection there. So. When he, Jesus, heard that Lazarus was ill, we would expect it to say he dropped everything and rushed to their aid. But what does it say? So, because he loved them, when he heard that their, that their brother was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place that he was. Hmm. John wants us to understand that Jesus really did love this family and that the way his love was manifested in this situation was by not showing up. <laughs> Where were you, Jesus? Well, I loved you, that's why I didn't show up. That's why I didn't come, I didn't 
come and prevent your brother from dying because I love you. And that sounds so strange to our ears, doesn't it? Could it be that Jesus defines love in a vastly different way than our world does? I'm tempted to say that he's redefining love here, but that wouldn't be correct because he defined love in the first place. It's our world that has redefined love. See this now. (laughs) To be loved by God is not to be protected by him from all pain and suffering. To be loved by God is to be enabled by him to see his glory in every situation and seeing it to enjoy making much of him through the good times and the bad. That is love in Jesus' eyes. Listen, if you do not get this, you will eventually become angry with God. You'll eventually become disappointed with God. Too often we think someone loves us because they make much of us. And it feels good to be made much of, doesn't it? But God's love for us isn't focused on making much of our awesomeness. (laughs) Rather, his love changes us so that we can enjoy making much of his awesomeness. No matter what happens to us. Man, I hope you get this. Somebody does. You can know, listen, you can know that God loves you today because he has done everything necessary to enable you to be the happiest you can be when you are praising him for his greatness. One man wrote this, you and I were made to enjoy praising greatness, and it is so true. It's why we pay lots of money to fill up the stadiums and the arenas and the music halls of our cities. It's why we get goosebumps watching Seth Curry drain a half-court shot at the buzzer. It's why we come out of our seats and our, our hearts nearly explode when our team comes from behind to pull victory out of the jaws of defeat in the final seconds. We cannot escape it. It's woven into the very fabric of who we are. It's why we plan vacations to the ocean and the Grand Canyon and Niagara Falls and Hawaii. You don't do those things to go try to improve your self-esteem. We go to exotic places because we want to behold awesomeness and be blown away by it. It's in all of us. We were created to enjoy greatness and to help others enjoy it too, right? When when we find something like that, we're like, "You you gotta check this out. You gotta take this vacation we took. You gotta go to this event with me. You gotta see it, you gotta see it, you gotta see it. All of those experiences graciously given to us by our creator are glimpses of our destiny. They're meant to stir up and arouse anticipation for seeing and praising the one who is the ultimate in awesomeness, the great and glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, at the end of his prayer in John 17, when he's praying to his father just before his execution, he finishes up by saying, He's praying for us, he's praying for his people down through the centuries and he he prays and he says, Father, I want them to see me in my glory. That's what I want more than anything. I want them to see me. Is that being all self-focused and self-centered? No, Jesus knew that us seeing him in his glory would be our greatest joy. He wants your happiness. Happiness. 
in his glory. See, the most loving thing God can do for us is give us eyes to see and a heart to appreciate him as the most glorious being in the whole universe. It's love, that's love, because only then will your joy be full. Love seeks the highest joy of the beloved, right? The highest joy, and that's what God does. I hope you can see it better now. God's being glorified and you being happy are inseparable. We should be eternally grateful that God aims to make much of himself because our fullest joy is based on his commitment to magnifying his own glory. So John is very careful to tell us that the reason Jesus didn't drop everything and rush over to Bethany because, was because he loved his friends and he wanted them to see the glory of God and be happy, be very happy. Apparently if he had come and healed Lazarus of his illness, the people would not have seen the glory of God to the extent that he had in mind. And so that is love. It's a countercultural, foreign-sounding kind of love. But let's let Jesus define love, amen? Let's let him define it. Hear this quote from John Piper. Do not measure, please, do not measure the love of God for you by how much health and wealth and comfort he brings into your life, if that were the measure of God's love, then he hated the Apostle Paul. And I would add that he hated his own son. Measure God's love for you by how much of himself he shows to you, how much of himself he gives you to know and to enjoy. If that reorients your mind a little bit, good. (laughs) We all need our minds renewed, amen? But there is something else here. This is where we've been going. Yes, God doesn't always spare us from pain. Yes, his purpose in allowing suffering is to put his glory on display. And yes, his love is expressed in enabling us to enjoy making much of him, even in our pain. But look, there's a fourth reality that Jesus intends for his people to rejoice in. And this one changes everything. Number four, Jesus promised to raise everybody from the dead one day. And he proved he had the power to do it by raising Lazarus. And as I read this story, I feel the anticipation building, do you? Jesus comes near to the town and Martha goes out to greet him. In verse 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. She's like, Maybe you're gonna do something. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Talking about resurrection, I'm standing here. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this, Martha? And she said to him, yes, Lord. Listen to her confession now. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. You know, Martha gets a bad rap sometimes for other incidents she was involved in, but here, she's rock solid, isn't she? You're the Christ, you're the Son of God. And a glimmer of hope starts to rise up in her. Do you feel it? 
Maybe he's going to do something. Then Mary comes out to meet Jesus, and she's weeping. And then everybody else is weeping. And then Jesus starts to weep. The Son of God, knowing full well what he would pull off in just a matter of minutes, still weeping. And they all start to make their way to the gravesite. When they get there, he says, take away the stone. And the people are thinking, but Lord, he's been in there four days. It's, it's not going to be good. It's going to stink once that stone gets removed. You see, we're not doing the embalming thing yet. <laughs> Spices have worn off by now. It's going to be really bad. Verse 40, Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And then what does he do? He prays out loud in the presence of all the people to his father for their benefit. He even says that. To glorify his father. Now think about that. Here's God the son praying to God the father. Now part of why I used to chafe at the God-centeredness of God was because I wasn't taking the Trinity into account. I thought it was selfish of God to be all self-focused. It's selfish of me to be like that, right? But then God opened my eyes to realize it's not like that. God is one God, but he exists in three persons. And what you see in scripture is the three members of the Trinity unselfishly glorifying each other. The Father seeking to exalt who? The Son, the Son honoring the Father, the Spirit empowering the Son to glorify the Father, later empowering the church to exalt the Son. Do you see this? That realization changed my mind about the God-centeredness of God and caused me to see it as a loving thing. Embracing that truth can put your heart at rest as well, I believe. So here by the Spirit's power, the Son is glorifying the Father in his prayer for what he's about to do, and it's a beautiful thing. And so some guys head over, probably some young, beefy guys head over to move that stone, because it would have been pretty hefty. The stone sealed the tomb, not unlike a later stone would seal a tomb, right? They, they roll it up the embankment there. The crowd waits in anticipation. You, 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 don't, what's he do? you don't think he's gonna do something here, do you? Lazarus, come out. And many scholars have noted how important it was for Jesus to very narrowly specify exactly who it was he was calling out of the tomb that moment. For if he had simply yelled, come out, all the dead people would have come out. And that would have been very disconcerting. So Lazarus, just you for now, come out. And then John records with eight simple words. The God-glorifying, skeptic-defying, paradigm-shattering, faith-fueling result, and the man who had died came out. And that's something you don't see every day. I remember a few years ago, my youngest son and I riding our bikes down by Mifflin Cemetery down here. And uh, we stopped for some reason. I just felt prompted, hey, let's walk through and let's look at some of these names on these headstones. So we did that. And I leaned over and I said, you know what, buddy? One day, 
all of these graves are gonna be opened up and every single dead person is gonna be alive again. And his eyes got real big and he's like, really? And I said, yep, count on it because Jesus promised it. And Jesus has power over the grave. It's gonna happen. You know what, Lazarus' resurrection was really a preview of your resurrection and mine and everybody else's. Jesus had said, I am the resurrection and the life. That's Jesus. Then he said, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. That's Lazarus. And then he said, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. That's you and me. That's my grandma and grandpa. That's my wife's dad who was crushed in a freak car accident in 1982 believer in Jesus Christ. He is going to be raised. That's your mother who knew Jesus. That's your dad or brother or son or daughter who loved Jesus Christ but has passed on. That's those Christian martyrs in orange jumpsuits kneeling on the beach in Libya, knives at their throats, about to make the ultimate sacrifice because they refuse to renounce their faith in Jesus Christ. Everyone who lives and believes in me, Jesus said, will never die. Listen, this is the reality that changes everything. Jesus has power over death. And you know that before long, from this incident, Jesus himself would die. He would lay down his life, wouldn't he? We sang about it earlier. As that sacrificial lamb, whose blood would be shed as the purchase price of our redemption. He would bear our sins. He would substitute himself for us, taking the judgment that we deserve. And then on that first Easter Sunday morning, he would rise from the grave, never to die again, unlike Lazarus, who died, was raised, and then would die again. Jesus alive forevermore, he said. And he said, because I live, you also will live. He promised to raise everybody from the grave one day. And by raising Lazarus on this day, he proved his power to do it. That explains the courage of Christian martyrs down through the centuries, doesn't it? Those who gave their lives for Christ because they know and believe that Jesus will raise them one day to live with him forever in eternity. That's why the famous martyr by the name of Justin Martyr, centuries ago, could say to his persecutors, looking them, them in the eye, he said, you can kill me, but you can't do me any real harm. <laughs> he knew that for him, death was just the doorway to eternity, to a glorious, joy-filled forever with Jesus. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die, never really die. Well, sure, your body and soul might get separated for a season, but you won't cease to exist. And one day, Jesus will raise your body from the cemetery, from the grave, from the ocean, from the garden, wherever your remains happen to end up in this world, and he will recompose it somehow into a new glorious body and then reunite it with your soul so that the brand new you will be able to see and savor and enjoy praising greatness forever in the person of Jesus Christ. 
without any hindrances, without any obstructions, without any sinful flesh clinging to you any longer, you will live in fullness of joy because of this promise. That's the hope of Christianity. That's the profound joy of Easter. Listen, no other founder of any other world religion made these kind of claims and then backed them up. They're all in a grave somewhere except Jesus, our Lord, our Savior. This is why the gospel is such good news for us. Such good news. Amen? Amen. Amen. All this brings us to a final question. And it's the same question that Jesus asked Martha in verse 26. Do you believe this? And I ask you that question this morning. Do you believe this? Believe what? Do you believe the deepest core of your being that the difficulties and trials and hardships of this life, even the tragedies and death, that Jesus does allow that they all have a purpose? You believe that? Do you believe that displaying the glory of God is the highest purpose and aim of the whole universe? Remember, the heavens declare the glory of God, right? Do you believe that God wants to glorify himself through hardship and difficulty and through your response to those things? Do you believe that your deepest joy, listen, do you believe this, that your deepest joy will be found in glorifying God with your life? Do you believe that God's love for you is demonstrated not by making your life super easy, but by using hard things to open your eyes to how glorious he is so you will be happy in him? Do you believe that Jesus Christ truly has power over death, that he is the resurrection and the life, and that he not only raised Lazarus, but raised himself that very first Easter? Do you believe that? And do you believe his promise that one day he will raise everybody to life, all who believe in him? And they will spend forever enjoying each other and him in a wonderful recreated paradise called heaven. Do you believe it? Do you? Well, here at New Life, we, we seek to present God's word and then call you to respond to it. And I've placed some possible responses you might have to this message today on the back side near the bottom of your outline. Maybe you're here today and you're saying, yes, I already believe this. If that's you, I say praise God for that. Praise God for that. I already believe it. Some of you, though, perhaps you're saying, you know what? Coming in here today, I don't know that I believe it, but I believe it now. God's used his word, his gospel to create faith in me. I believe it now, today, and I would say to you, if that's the case, tell somebody. Tell the person who brought you here or drug you here or bribed you here. Come up and tell me afterwards. I'm believing this now. Some of you might respond this way. Well, I'm not really sure I believe, but I want to. I want to believe. Pray for me, and I will in just a moment. I hope if you've come today and you're new to new life, maybe you'll, you would say, I, I, need to, I need to explore this more. There's more here. I can tell that. I, I, I plan to keep coming back to new life and hearing the message of this book of John. And I hope many of you will do that. I pray the Holy Spirit of God gives us all the faith to believe it, all of it, for God's glory 
and for our ultimate joy in him. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this incredible story of the demonstration of your power over the grave, over death. Lord, there's a lot of deep truth in here that we talked about today. And I know that for some, they're wrestling with some of the things they've heard. And I pray that you would have mercy on them, Lord, and give them understanding, and especially give them faith. I pray for those, Lord, who, who are saying, I, I wanna believe, I'm not sure I do, but I want to, and I pray that you would work and orchestrate circumstances and, and meetings with people and other things, Lord, that would bring them to the point of, of believing. Lord, for those who today are trusting in Jesus to be everything that he said that he was, I pray that you would give them forgiveness of sin and new birth through the cross and through the empty tomb. Thank you for Easter. Thank you for this day. We worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Visit us each week as we continue to journey through God's word and seek to know him better through the gospel. Our prayer is that the gospel has taken a deeper hold of you as we have studied the word together at New Life Church, where Jesus is front and center all the time.